0: There's something new on Airs L.A. every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. March 13. On this date in rock and roll history, in the year 1965, Eric Clapton leaves the Yardbirds. In and of itself, one man leaving one band in the middle of the 1960s might warrant little more than a historical footnote. But what makes the departure of Eric Clapton from the Yardbirds on March 13, 1965, more significant is the long and complicated game of musical chairs it set off within the world of British blues rock. When Clapton walked out on the Yardbirds, he did more than just change the course of his own career. He also set in motion a chain of events that would see not just one, but two more guitar giants pass through the Yardbirds on their way through significant futures of their own. And through the various groups they would later form, influence, join, and quit, these three guitar heroes, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page, would shape more than a decade's worth of rock and roll. Eric Clapton was only 18 when he joined the Yardbirds in 1963, just after the group took over for the up-and-coming Rolling Stones as the house band at London's Crawdaddy Club. Like many musicians of his generation, Clapton was primarily interested in American blues, and he was enough of a purist about it to quit the Yardbirds when they drifted from the blues towards experimental pop with their early 1965 hit For Your Love. Clapton recommended as his replacement his friend Jimmy Page, then an enormously successful session musician, but Page declined. That led to the Yardbirds' hiring Jeff Beck, who would serve as the group's lead guitarist during its most successful and influential period. In 1966, when another of the Yardbirds' original members quit, Jimmy Page finally agreed to join the group, teaming with Beck in a twin guitar attack for a brief period before Beck was fired later that same year. Page would be the final lead guitarist for the Yardbirds, who essentially disbanded in 1968. March 14. On this date in history, in the year 1879, Albert Einstein is born. Albert Einstein is born on this day, on March 14, 1879, the son of a Jewish electrical engineer in Ulm, Germany. Einstein's theories of special and general relativity drastically altered human understanding of the universe, and his work in particle and energy theory helped make possible quantum mechanics and, ultimately, the atomic bomb. After a childhood in Germany and Italy, Einstein studied physics and mathematics at the Federal Polytechnic Academy in Zurich, Switzerland. He became a Swiss citizen and in 1905 was awarded a PhD from the University of Zurich while working at the Swiss Patent Office in Bern. That year, which historians of Einstein's career call the Annus Mirabilis, the miracle year, he published five theoretical papers that were to have a profound effect on the development of modern physics. In the first of these, titled On a Heuristic Viewpoint Concerning the Production and Transformation of Light, Einstein theorized that light is made up of individual quanta photons that demonstrate particle-like properties while collectively behaving like a wave. The hypothesis, an important step in the development of quantum theory, was arrived at through Einstein's examination of the photoelectric effect, a phenomenon in which some solids emit electrically charged particles when struck by light. This work would later earn him the 1921 Nobel Prize in Physics. In the second paper, he devised a new method of counting and determining the size of the atoms and molecules in a given space, and in the third, he offered a mathematical explanation for the constant erratic movement of particles suspended in a fluid, known as Brownian motion. These two papers provided indisputable evidence of the existence of atoms, which at the time was still disputed by a few scientists. Einstein's fourth groundbreaking scientific work of 1905 addressed what he termed his special theory of relativity. In special relativity, time and space are not absolute, but relative to the motion of the observer. Thus, two observers traveling at great speeds in regard to each other would not necessarily observe simultaneous events in time at the same moment, nor necessarily agree in their measurement of space. In Einstein's theory, the speed of light, which is the limiting speed of any body having mass, is constant in all frames of reference. In the fifth paper that year, an exploration of the mathematics of special relativity, Einstein announced that mass and energy were equivalent and could be calculated with an equation of e equals mc squared. Although the public was not quick to embrace his revolutionary science. Einstein was welcomed into the circle of Europe's most eminent physicists and given professorships in Zurich, Prague, and Berlin. In 1916, he published The Foundation of the General Theory of Relativity, which proposed that gravity, as well as motion, can affect the intervals of time and of space. According to Einstein, gravitation is not a force, as Isaac Newton had argued. But a curved field in the space-time continuum created by the presence of mass. An object of very large gravitational mass, such as the Sun, would therefore appear to warp space and time around it, which could be demonstrated by observing starlight as it skirted the Sun on its way to Earth. In 1919, astronomers studying a solar eclipse verified predictions Einstein made in the general theory of relativity and he became an overnight celebrity. Later, other predictions of general relativity, such as a shift in the orbit of the planet Mercury and the probable existence of black holes, were confirmed by scientists. During the next decade, Einstein made continued contributions to quantum theory and began work on a unified field theory, which he hoped would would encompass quantum mechanics and his own relativity theory as a grand explanation of the workings of the universe. As a world-renowned public figure, he became increasingly political, taking up the cause of Zionism and speaking out against militarism and rearmament. In his native Germany, this made him an unpopular figure. And after Nazi leader Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany in 1933, Einstein renounced his German citizenship and left the country. He later settled in the United States, where he accepted a post at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. He would remain there for the rest of his life, working on his unified field theory and relaxing by sailing on a local lake or playing his violin. He became an American citizen in 1940. In 1939, despite his lifelong pacifist beliefs, he agreed to write to President Franklin D. Roosevelt on behalf of a group of scientists who were concerned with American inaction in the field of atomic weapons research. Like the other scientists, he feared sole German possession of such a weapon. He played no role, however, in the subsequent Manhattan Project and later deplored the use of atomic bombs against Japan. After the war, he called for the establishment of a world government that would control nuclear technology and prevent future armed conflict. In 1950, he published his Unified Field Theory, which was quietly criticized as a failure. A unified explanation of gravitation, subatomic phenomena, and electromagnetism remains elusive today. Albert Einstein, one of the most creative minds in human history, died in Princeton in 1955. March 15. On this date in sports history in the year 1869, the Cincinnati Red Stockings become the first professional baseball team. Cincinnati attorney Aaron Champion hires former cricket player Harry Wright to organize, manage, and play for the Cincinnati Red Stockings, who become the first professional baseball team. The organization of the club comes shortly after the National Association of Baseball Players, which had previously banned the payment of players, allows open professionalism after the close of the 1868 season. The organization of the club comes shortly after the National Association of Baseball Players, which had previously banned the payment of players, allows open professionalism after the close of the 1868 season. In 1869, the Red Stockings finished the season with a 57-0 record, 64-0 with exhibitions included. Baseball was still in the underhand pitch iteration of the sport, so the team routinely scored dozens of runs in games. The Red Stockings defeated the Buckeyes of Cincinnati 103-8. to Wright, given roughly $10,000 to assemble the best team money could buy, signed his younger brother George to a team-high $1,400 salary. George, a shortstop who was considered to be the best baseball player, was well worth the investment as he reportedly hit 63 with 49 home runs and averaged six runs per game. In addition to managing, Harry Wright played center field and pitched. He was the second-highest-paid player on the roster with a $1,200 salary. Known as the father of professional baseball, Harry was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1953. George was inducted in 1937. This did not just make the city famous, it made baseball-famous Major League Baseball's official historian John Thorne said of the Red Stockings impact. March 16. On this date in literary history, in the year 1850, The Scarlet Letter is published. Nathaniel Hawthorne's Story of Adultery and Betrayal in Colonial America, The Scarlet Letter, is published. Hawthorne was born in Salem, Massachusetts in 1804. Although the infamous Salem Witch Trials had taken place more than 100 years earlier, the events still hung over the town and made a lasting impression on the young Hawthorne. Witchcraft figured in several of his works, including Young Goodman Brown in 1835 and The House of the Seven Gables in 1851, in which a house is cursed by a wizard condemned by the witch trials. After attending Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, Hawthorne returned to Salem, where he began his career as a writer. He self-published his first book in 1828, but tried to destroy all copies shortly after publication. He later wrote several books on short stories, including Twice Told Tales in 1837. In 1841, he tried his hand at communal living at the agricultural cooperative Brook Farm, but came away highly disillusioned by the experience which he fictionalized in his novel The Blythedale Romance in 1852. Hawthorne married Sophia Peabody in 1842, having at least earned enough money from his writing to start a family. The two lived in a house called The Old Manse in Concord, Massachusetts, and socialized with Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, and Branson Alcott, father of the writer Louisa May Alcott. Plagued by financial difficulties, as his family grew, he took a job in 1845 at Salem's Custom House, where he worked for three years. After leaving the job, he spent several months writing the Scarlet Letter, which made him famous. In 1853, Hawthorne's old college friend, President Franklin Pierce, appointed him American consul to England, and the family moved to England, where they lived for three years. Hawthorne died in Plymouth, New Hampshire, in 1864. March 17. On this date in history in the year 461, St. Patrick dies. On March 17, 461 A.D., St. Patrick, Christian, missionary, bishop, and apostle of Ireland, dies at Saul Downpatrick, Ireland. Today, he is honored with the annual holiday of St. Patrick's Day. Much of what is known about Patrick's legendary life comes from The Confessio, a book he wrote during his last years. Born in Great Britain, probably in Scotland, to a well-to-do Christian family of Roman citizenship, Patrick was captured and enslaved at age 16 by Irish marauders. For the next six years, he worked as a herder in Ireland, turning to a deepening religious faith for comfort. Following the counsel of a voice he heard in a dream one night, he escaped and found passage on a ship to Britain, where he was eventually reunited with his family. According to the Confessio, in Britain Patrick had another dream, in which an individual named Victoricus gave him a letter entitled The Voice of the Irish. As he read it, Patrick seemed to hear the voices of Irishmen pleading him to return to their country and walk among them once more. After studying for the priesthood, Patrick was ordained a bishop. He arrived in Ireland in 433 and began preaching the gospel, converting many thousands of Irish and building churches around the country. After forty years of living in poverty, teaching, traveling, and working tirelessly, Patrick died on March 17, 461, in Saul, where he had built his first church. Since that time, countless legends have grown up around Patrick, made the patron saint of Ireland. He is said to have baptized hundreds of people on a single day, and to have used a three-leaf clover, the famous shamrock, to describe the Holy Trinity. In art, he is often portrayed trampling on snakes, in accordance with the belief that he drove those reptiles out of Ireland. For centuries, the Irish have observed the day of St. Patrick's death as a religious holiday, attending church in the morning and celebrating with food and drink in the afternoon. The first St. Patrick's Day parade, though, took place not in Ireland, but the United States. Records show that a St. Patrick's Day parade was held on March 17, 1601, in a Spanish colony under the direction of the colony's Irish vicar, Ricardo Artur. More than a century later, homesick Irish soldiers serving in the English military marched in Boston in 1737 and in New York City on March 1762. As the years went on, parades became a show of unity and strength for persecuted Irish-American immigrants and then a popular celebration of Irish-American heritage. The party went global in 1995. When the Irish government began a large scale campaign to market St. Patrick's Day as a way of driving tourism and showcasing Ireland's many charms to the rest of the world. These days, March 17 is a day of international celebration as millions of people around the globe put on their best green clothing to drink beer, watch parades, and toast the luck of the Irish. March 18. On this date in history, in the year 1852, Wells and Fargo start a shipping and banking company. On March 18, 1852, in New York City, Henry Wells and William G. Fargo join with several other investors to launch their namesake business, today one of the world's largest banks. The discovery of gold in California in 1849 prompted a huge spike in the demand for cross-country shipping. Wells and Fargo decided to take advantage of these great opportunities. In July 1852, their company shipped its first loads of freight from the East Coast to mining camps scattered around Northern California. The company contracted with independent stagecoach companies to provide the fastest possible transportation and delivery of gold dust, important documents, and other valuable freight. It also served as a bank buying gold dust, selling paper bank drafts, and providing loans to help fuel California's growing economy. In 1857, Wells Fargo and Company formed the Overland Mail Company, known as the Butterfield Line, which provided regular mail and passenger service along an ever-growing number of routes. In the boom-and-bust economy of the 1850s, the company earned a reputation as a trustworthy and reliable business, and its logo, the classic stagecoach, became famous. For a premium price, Wells Fargo & Company would send an employee on horseback to deliver or pick up a message or package. Wells Fargo & Company merged with several other Pony Express and Stagecoach lines in 1866 to become the unrivaled leader in transportation in the West. When the Transcontinental Railroad was completed three years later, the company began using railroad to transport its freight. By 1910, its shipping network connected 6,000 locations from the urban centers of the east and the farming towns of the Midwest to the ranching and mining centers of Texas and California and the lumber mills in the Pacific Northwest. After splitting from the freight business in 1905, the banking branch of the company merged with the Nevada National Bank and established new headquarters in San Francisco. During World War I, the U.S. government nationalized the company's shipping routes and combined them with the railroads into the American Railway Express, effectively putting an end to Wells Fargo and Company as a transportation and delivery business. The following April, the banking headquarters was destroyed in a major earthquake, but the vaults remained intact and the bank's business continued to grow. After two later mergers, the Wells Fargo Bank American Trust Company, shortened to the Wells Fargo Bank in 1962, has remained one of the biggest banking institutions in the United States. March 19. On this date in history, in the year 1931, Nevada legalizes gambling. In an attempt to lift the state out of the hard times of the Great Depression, the Nevada state legislature votes to legalize gambling. Located in the Great Basin Desert, few settlers chose to live in Nevada after the United States acquired the territory at the end of the Mexican War in 1848. In 1859, the discovery of the Comstock load of gold and silver spurred the first substantial number of settlers into Nevada to exploit the territory's mining opportunities. Five years later, during the Civil War, Nevada was hastily made the 36th state in order to strengthen the Union. At the beginning of the Depression, Nevada's mines were in decline, and its economy was in shambles. In March 1931, Nevada's state legislature responded to population flight by taking the drastic measure of legalizing, gambling, and later in the year, divorce. Las Vegas, Nevada has since become the gambling and entertainment capital of the world famous for its casinos, nightclubs, and sporting events. In the first few decades after the legalization of gambling, organized crime flourished in Las Vegas. Today, state gambling taxes account for the lion's share of Nevada's overall tax revenues. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for March 13 through March 19. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.